Second part of the introduction to the life of reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Side note. It has a natural basis which makes it definable. To study such an ideal, dimly expressed though it be in human existence, is no prophetic or visionary undertaking. Every genuine ideal has a natural basis. Anyone may understand and safely interpret it who is attentive to the life from which it springs. To decipher the life of reason, nothing is needed but an analytic spirit and a judicious love of man, a love quick to distinguish success from failure in his great and confused experiment of living. The historian of reason should not be a romantic poet, vibrating impotently to every impulse he finds afoot, without a criterion of excellence or a vision of perfection. Ideals are free but they are neither more numerous nor more variable than the living natures that generate them. Ideals are legitimate, and each initially envisages a genuine and innocent good, but they are not realizable together, nor even singly when they have no deep roots in the world. Neither is the philosopher compelled by his somewhat judicial office to be a satirist or censor, without sympathy for those tentative and ingenuous passions out of which, after all, his own standards must arise. He is the chronicler of human progress, and to measure that progress he should be equally attentive to the impulses that give it direction and to the circumstances amid which it stumbles toward its natural goal. Side note. Modern philosophy not helpful. There is unfortunately no school of modern philosophy to which a critique of human progress can well be attached. Almost every school, indeed, can furnish something useful to the critic, sometimes a physical theory, sometimes a piece of logical analysis. We shall need to borrow from current science and speculation the picture they draw of man's condition and environment, his history and mental habits. These may furnish a theatre and properties for our drama, but they offer no hint of its plot and meaning. A great imaginative apathy has fallen on the mind. One half the learned world is amused in tinkering obsolete armour as Don Quixote did his helmet, deputing it after a series of catastrophes, to be at least sound and invulnerable. The other half, the naturalists who have studied psychology and evolution, look at life from the outside and the processes of nature make them forget her uses. Bacon indeed had prized science for adding to the comforts of life, a function still commemorated by positivists in their eloquent moments. Habitually, however, when they utter the word progress, it is, in their mouths, a synonym for inevitable change, or at best for change in that direction which they conceive to be on the whole predominant. If they combine with physical speculation some elements of morals, these are usually purely formal, to the effect that happiness is to be pursued. Probably, alas, because to do so is a psychological law. But what happiness consists in 
we gather only from casual observations or by putting together their national prejudices and party saws. Side note: Positivism, no positive ideal. The truth is that even this radical school, emancipated as it thinks itself, is suffering from the after-effects of supernaturalism. Like children escaped from school, they find their whole happiness in freedom. They are proud of what they have rejected, as if a great wit were required to do so, but they do not know what they want. If you astonish them by demanding what is their positive ideal, further than that there should be a great many people and that they should be all alike, they will say at first that what ought to be is obvious, and later they will submit the matter to a majority vote. They have discarded the machinery in which their ancestors embodied the ideal. They have not perceived that those symbols stood for the life of reason and gave fantastic and embarrassed expression to what, in itself, is pure humanity. And they have thus remained entangled in the colossal error that ideals are something adventitious and unmeaning not having a soil in mortal life, nor a possible fulfillment there. Side note. Christian philosophy mythical. It misrepresents facts and conditions. The profound and pathetic ideas which inspired Christianity were attached in the beginning to ancient myths and soon crystallized into many new ones. The mythical manner pervades Christian philosophy but myth succeeds in expressing ideal life only by misrepresenting its history and conditions. This method was indeed not original with the fathers. They borrowed it from Plato, who appealed to parables himself in an open and harmless fashion, yet with disastrous consequences to his school. Nor was he the first, for the instinct to regard poetic fictions as revelations of supernatural facts is as old as a soul's primitive incapacity to distinguish dreams from waking perceptions, sign from things signified, and inner emotions from external powers. Such confusions, though in a way they obey moral forces, make a rational estimate of things impossible. To misrepresent the conditions and consequences of action is no merely speculative error. It involves a false emphasis in character and an artificial balance and coordination among human pursuits. When ideals are hypostasized into powers alleged to provide for their own expression, the life of reason cannot be conceived. In theory, its field of operation is preempted and its function gone, while in practice its inner impulses are turned awry by artificial stimulation and repression. The patristic systems, though weak in their foundations, were extraordinarily wise and comprehensive in their working out, and while they inverted life, they preserved it dogma added to the universe fabulous perspectives it interpolated also innumerable incidents and powers which gave a new dimension to experience yet the old world remained standing in its strange setting like the pantheon in modern rome and 
what is more important the natural springs of human action were still acknowledged and if a supernatural discipline was imposed it was only because experience and faith had disclosed a situation in which the pursuit of earthly happiness seemed hopeless nature was not destroyed by its novel appendages nor did reason die in the cloister it hibernated there and could come back to its own in due season only a little dazed and weakened by its long confinement such at least is the situation in catholic regions where the patristic philosophy has not appreciably varied among protestants christian dogma has taken a new and ambiguous direction which has at once minimized its disturbing effect in practice and isolated its primary illusion the symptoms have been cured and the disease driven in Sidenote. liberal theology a superstitious attitude toward a natural world the tenets of protestant bodies are notoriously varied and on principle subject to change there is hardly a combination of tradition and spontaneity which has not been tried in some quarter if we think however of broad tendencies and ultimate issues it appears that in protestantism myth without disappearing has changed its relation to reality instead of being an extension to the natural world myth has become its substratum religion no longer reveals divine personalities future rewards and tenderer elysian consolations nor does it seriously propose a heaven to be reached by a ladder nor a purgatory to be shortened by prescribed devotions it merely gives the real world an ideal status and teaches men to accept a natural life on supernatural grounds the consequence is that the most pious can give an unvarnished description of things even immortality and the idea of god are submitted in liberal circles to scientific treatment on the other hand it would be hard to conceive a more inveterate obsession than that which keeps the attitude of these same minds inappropriate to the objects they envisage they have accepted natural conditions they will not accept natural ideals the life of reason has no existence for them because although its field is clear they will not tolerate any human or finite standard of value and will not suffer extant interests which can alone guide them in action or judgment to define the worth of life the after-effects of hebraism are here contrary to its foundations for the jews loved the world so much that they brought themselves in order to win and enjoy it to an intense concentration of purpose but this effort and discipline which had of course been mythically sanctioned not only failed of its object but grew far too absolute and sublime to think its object could ever have been earthly and the supernatural machinery which was to have secured prosperity while that still enticed now had to furnish some worthier object for the passion it had artificially fostered
fanaticism consists in redoubling your effort when you have forgotten your aim an earnestness which is out of proportion to any knowledge or love of real things which is therefore dark and inward and thinks itself deeper than the earth's foundations such an earnestness until culture turns it into intelligent interests will naturally breed a new mythology it will try to place some world of aphrites and shadowy giants behind the constellations which it finds too distinct and constant to be its companions or supporters and it will assign to itself vague and infinite tasks for which it is doubtless better equipped than for those which the earth now sets before it even these however since they are parts of an infinite whole the mystic may histrionically perhaps yet zealously undertake but as his eye will be perpetually fixed on something invisible beyond and nothing will be done for its own sake or enjoyed in its own fugitive presence there will be little art and little joy in existence all will be a tossing servitude and illiberal mist where the parts will have no final values and the whole no pertinent direction Side note the greeks thought straight in both physics and morals in greek philosophy the situation is far from auspicious the ancients led a rational life and envisaged the various spheres of speculation as men might whose central interests were rational in physics they leaped at once to the conception of a dynamic unity and general evolution thus giving that background to human life which shrewd observation would always have descried and which modern science has laboriously rediscovered two great systems offered in two legitimate directions what are doubtless the final and radical accounts of physical being Heraticlus describing the immediate found it to be in constant and pervasive change no substances no forms no identities could be arrested there but as in the human soul so in nature all was instability contradiction reconstruction and oblivion this remains the empirical fact and we need but to resign the artificial division which discards has taught us to make between nature and life to feel again the absolute aptness of heraclitus expressions these were thought obscure only because they were so disconcertingly penetrating and direct the immediate is what nobody sees because convention and reflection turn existence as soon as they can into ideas a man who discloses the immediate seems profound yet his depth is nothing but innocence recovered and a sort of intellectual abstention mysticism scepticism and transcendentalism have all in their various ways tried to fall back on the immediate but none of them has been ingenious enough each has added some myth or sophistry or delusive artifice to its direct observation heraclitus remains the honest prophet of immediacy a mystic without raptures or bad rhetoric a sceptic 
who does not rely for his results on conventions unwittingly adopted a transcendentalist without pretensions or incongruous dogmas end of introduction part two